We are in a series on Romans, the gospel of God concerning his son. Um, we're in Romans chapter 4 today. Can you believe it? We're already in chapter 4. Message number 13. And uh, let's stand together and read God's word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, if you've been with us for a while or you've, or you've simply been reading Romans, you know that in chapters 1 through 3, Paul has been establishing a claim that the gospel reveals a righteousness from God on the basis of personal faith. The phrase we often use here is justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The faith that excludes boasting and upholds the law. On one occasion in chapter 1 and on two occasions in chapter 3, Paul has demonstrated that the teach, this teaching, this t- uh, doctrine of justification by faith alone is not a new teaching. It's not some something alien to all that has gone before, but that it is what the Old Testament scriptures taught all along. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, Paul says that God promised this gospel beforehand, beforehand, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In chapter 3, verse 21, Paul adds that now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It has been made known. It has been revealed. It has been brought to light apart from the law. Although, he says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is not a foreign doctrine to the Old Testament scriptures. As we saw last week in verse 31 of chapter 3, Paul asserts that the gospel of justification by faith alone, far from overthrowing, far from replacing or invalidating the law, in fact upholds the law for this reason that Christ, Jesus Christ, fulfilled the law for us on our behalf. He said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here in chapter 4 now, verses 1 through 8, Paul goes the next step. And he calls two outstanding witnesses from the Old Testament world to support his case, no less than Abraham and David. Combining verse 1 and verse 6, the effect is, what did Abraham discover about being made right with God? Well, David says the same thing Abraham says. Why is that important, that Abraham that what Abraham discovered is is consistent with what David said. 
Well, to understand why it's important, uh, you have to realize who these two men were in the history of the Jewish people. I'm going to spend a little more time uh, in the next message talking about uh, the story of Abraham. But Abraham is the biological father of the Jews. Uh, he is the ancestor, which is why Paul refers to Abraham here as our forefather according to the flesh. Uh, he is their biological source. David, on the other hand, was the greatest king of the Jews. So the father of the Jews, the greatest king of the Jews, under David's leadership, the nation of Israel reached really its high water mark. You say, well, Solomon had greater wealth. Yes, but all things considered, David is considered the great king of Israel. Messiah is referred to as son of David. Throughout chapters 1 to 3, Paul has been opposing a claim to righteousness before God that's rooted in nationalism, first of all. He says, it doesn't matter that you're a Jew. That's good. You were born into a Jewish family. Okay. And, and But that's not what righteousness is all about, nor is it uh, on the basis of the works of the law. So the question is, what did Abraham and David agree about? And immediately, Paul poses a couple of options, a couple of alternatives. The first is that maybe Abraham was justified by works. That is, that saving faith equals obedience to the law that faith and obedience are one and the same. Uh, Paul says that if that were the case, uh, and it really is true, then, then the logical conclusion is that Abraham really did have something to boast about. Um, the Jews held that Abraham was justified by obedience. It's a funny thing. You know, Christians would say, well, Abraham was, is the father of those who are justified by faith. And the Jews would say, no, Abraham is the father of those who are justified by obedience to the law. And Paul says that being justified by, by obedience to the law is impossible. Um, if, if Abraham depended on his works for his righteousness, and if he was a, a meticulous observer of the law, which he wasn't because the law wasn't even in effect in Abraham's day, then he might have something to boast about. But Paul says, but not before God. God's not impressed. Back in chapter 3, 27 and 28, Paul said unequivocally, boasting is excluded by the law of faith. Do you remember we talked about that? For, he, for we hold, he said, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So in verse 3, Paul asks, for what does the scripture say? And he, he points his readers to Genesis 15, 6. Let me just pause right there and, th and say, I think it's interesting the language that Paul uses here. He says, what does scripture say? He might have said what, what was written. But he's, instead he says, for, he asks, what do the scriptures say? Paul is the one who told us that uh, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. Theonoustos, God-breathed. And, and, and so what he's saying here is that Scriptures actually speak, and they speak because through them the Holy Spirit is speaking. God is speaking. What does the Scripture say? Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, as righteousness. Classic, classic statement in all of Scripture. You should, if you haven't memorized that little verse, you should memorize that and lock it in. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, verse 3 introduces an extremely important word. And I, 
I'm, I'm hesitant to, you know, throw Greek and Hebrew around because it's just really, in most cases, not necessary. But the word is here is important, and the word is logizomai. Logizomai. It's translated from Greek with the English word counted or credited, and it appears ten times here in chapter four. Um, Paul uses it over and over and over again, and five of those ten times are right here in verses three through eight. Logizomai comes to us from the world of accounting. By the way, it's the root word for for our word logic or logical um, or logistics. Um, but it, it comes to us from the world of accounting, and it means to count or credit as something. Um, to to credit something is to confer a status that didn't exist before. So let me give you an example that will maybe help you understand what that is. Let, let's say that you're renting a home. Maybe some of you are in this situation. You're renting a home, and your contract your rental contract says that you have a, an option of renting to own. You make your monthly rent payments, but if along the way you decide that, that you'd like to exercise that option, you'd like to buy that home, those past rent payments are now counted as mortgage payments. They're conferred a different status with a different effect. So when in verse 3, Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, he's saying that Abraham's faith was given a new status and it was credited to him as righteousness. We're going to get into the story a little further next time, but, but God called Abraham out of total obscurity. And in fact, if you, if you read the, the, the story of his life in, in the book of Genesis, latter part of Genesis, it says that God called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, which was in the, on the Mesopotamian plain, kind of between the Tigris and the Euphrates, north of the Persian Gulf, up in that area, was one of the largest uh, cities of its day. And it just says, God called Abraham. Well, who's Abraham? deal with it. Just God called Abraham. No history, just God called Abraham. Um, and and so, um, and, and Abraham, Abraham, he said, Abraham, I want you to move. And I want you to go over here to this other place I'm, I'm going to show you. But in order to see it, you got to go with me there. And Abraham went by faith. God didn't have to do anything other than that. But what God did was he took Abra that faith that moved Abraham to, to follow what God was trying to do. God said, I'm going to credit that to your account, Abraham, as righteousness. What does that mean? Well, let's look first at two things it doesn't mean. First, faith is not a form of righteousness. I'm going to split some hairs right now, and they're important hairs, okay? So bear with me. Faith is not a form of righteousness that merits God's faith favor. Another way of saying that is to say that faith is not a work, and we talked about this a couple of times now, that faith is, is receiving, not doing. Faith is receiving, not doing. It may move you to do, but it is primarily receiving. 
And I use the, the metaphor of faith being the hand of the heart. It's the receptor of the heart. It's the, it's the, the, the part of your heart's anatomy, if you will, that receives faith, receives from God. Secondly, faith does not merely result in righteousness. And now you're going, what? Faith does not merely result in righteousness, although it could be said, that if we believe God exists and we, then that he deserves our obedience, that he deserves our worship, then out of that might come something that people would look at and call righteous living. So what is, what does it mean to be justified by faith? To be justified by faith is to have your faith counted or credited to you as righteousness. In the case of Abraham, it wasn't that he led a perfectly moral or righteous lifestyle. In fact, if you read the story in the, in the latter part of the book of Genesis, you read of a guy who, though he had moments of brilliance, <laughs> had moments of failure, too. I mean, you, you, I, when I read Abraham's story, I, I like him. I just think, what a guy, you know? Uh, and I see myself in him in some ways, in a variety of ways. But... Um, what having his faith credited to him as righteousness meant is that God treated Abraham as if he was living a righteous life. His faith itself wasn't righteousness, but God conferred upon his faith a new status and counted it as if it were righteousness. Does that make sense to you, following me? Or is that really fuzzy? Just nod your head if you get it. Open your mouth real wide and just shake your head if you don't get it. Okay. I'm going to move on anyway. To have righteous credit, righteousness credited to your account is to receive righteousness that does not inherently belong to you. See, and here's the great news. I mean, that's great news all by itself. It's possible to be loved accepted, forgiven by God at the same time, listen to me, at the same time that you are sinful and imperfect. That's so good, I'm going to say it again. It is possible to be loved, accepted, and forgiven by God at the same time that you are sinful and imperfect. In Romans 5, Paul's going to tell us that while we were still weak, couldn't do anything for ourselves. At the, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While, while, while. While we were weak, while we were uh, still sinners, while we were even enemies, hostile towards God, God acted to save us from our sin by sending his son Christ. The reformer Martin Luther said in Latin that Christians are simul justice et peccator, at the same time both righteous and sinful. How can that be? Isn't that good news? Because I know you, you're screw-ups. Sorry. I'll point it at myself. I'm a screw-up. And, and, and I am so thankful. <laughs> So thankful 
that God loves me, has accepted me in Christ, has forgiven me on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's such great news. Verse 5, Paul makes a striking statement when he describes God as him who justifies the ungodly. You hear that? He doesn't say God justifies the godly. He doesn't say he justifies those who get themselves kind of brushed up, cleaned up, brush their teeth, comb their hair. God justifies the ungodly. And what that means is that when you receive your credited righteousness, you are still ungodly. You are functionally ungodly. Or stated in the reverse, you're still ungodly when God counts your faith as righteousness. He meets you in your sin. doesn't wait for you to clean yourself up. He meets you where you are. To, to be justified by faith is not to be righteous in yourself, but to receive righteousness as a gift from him who justifies the ungodly. In verse 4, Paul says that our righteousness is an either-or proposition. It's either merited by our works or credited to us even in the absence of works. Now to the one who works, he writes, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. I mean, you'd be kind of ticked off, wouldn't you, when it was time to get your paycheck and, and your boss characterized it as a gift? You're so fortunate to be receiving this from the company. Rejoice greatly. Buy a pizza. Celebrate. You say, no, this is not a gift. I worked for this. You owe me this. And that's what Paul is saying. You know, if someone gives you money, it's either in the form of wages you've earned, which are owed you, or it's in the form of a gift freely given, apart from any obligation on your part. I mean, we, Christmas was just not that long ago, right? I, mean, I just took the lights off my house last week. I'm embarrassed to tell you that, but, but it's true. I wasn't turning them on. They were just still hanging there. But on Christmas morning, you parents and all of us, we gave gifts to people, right? And so, and when you parents, when you put gifts for your kids under the tree, you didn't attach a note that said, I'd like payment for these by noon today. You, you didn't do that. It was a gift. They didn't need to do anything in response, but be excited and receive those things. If salvation is not a gift, then the corollary is that God is obliged to save you, just as your employer is obliged to pay you. And, and the word of Scripture is this, that there is nothing you have done that impresses God to that extent. It runs counter to the entire message of the gospel, let alone the entire Bible. He goes on in verse 5, And to the one who does not work but believes or trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And here Paul gives us, I think, a definition of faith. There, there are a lot of them throughout the, the New Testament, but here's one. It's, it is trust in God's provision of justification. It's trust in a provision, not trust in, in a performance. It's, trusted in a, it's trust in a provision, and that provision is justification, that God says, I'm going to declare you right in my sight. I'm going to hand down a verdict that you're okay. 
It's the end of one kind of trust. Trust in yourself. Trust in your abilities. And the beginning of another kind of trust altogether. Notice also in verse 5 that, that the one who is counted as righteous does not work. It doesn't mean that a saved person disregards the law in its entirety. What it means is that a saved person no longer trusts in obedience to the law as the way to be saved. A Christian, then, is one who has stopped working to be saved, not one who has stopped working. I heard someone say one time that the gospel is opposed to merit, not effort. You can't earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Secondly, a saved person trusts God who justifies the ungodly, meaning the Christian is, a, is one who trusts that God has a way to save us apart from our efforts. Saving faith, then, is a trust transfer. It's a trust transfer. It's the, the removal of one's trust from other things, especially your performance according to the law, whether it's the law of Moses or the law of your conscience or the law of your church, the law of your religion, and the placement of trust in Christ alone as Savior. I heard a woman one time say, well, I can't possibly accept that. And she was asked why. She said, if salvation is entirely by God's grace, then I no longer have control. And there's nothing he can't ask of me. And that's true. She was right on, but she couldn't accept it. See, we... we we, we stop trusting in ourselves as our own judges and our own justifiers. And we start trusting in God who justifies the ungodly. And he credits that trust as righteousness. However feeble that faith may be, he credits it as righteousness. Now suppose we went into any local church and we asked a random sample of churchgoers this question. Assuming for the moment that there really is a heaven, what do you think would be the general requirements for admission? And why should God let you in? And a large number of people would reply with one of the following three answers. First of all, there would be some who would say, well, because I've tried my best to be a good Christian. I always love that expression, good Christian. It's an oxymoron. There aren't any good Christians. They're only saved sinners, right? Because I've tried my best to be a good Christian. Or, or there'd be another group of people who would say, because I believe in God and try to do his will. Believe in God and try to do his will. Or third, and that third group would say, well, because I believe in God with all my heart with kind of an evangelical tremolo in there. Oh, my heart. And these three answers reveal, I think, common misperceptions about what it means to believe or to have faith. And notice that answer number one, because I've tried my best to be a good Christian, is a salvation by works answer. It's about what I've tried to do. It's about my effort. Answer number two 
Because I believe in God and try to try to do His will. Is a salvation by faith plus works? Answer: I believe in God, and I'm trying real hard. Salvation by faith plus works. Answer number three: Because I believe in God with all my heart, is a salvation by faith as work? Answer: You guys are thinking right now, aren't you? Salvation by faith as work. You know, we, we evangelical Christians are really funny. I mean, we, we really want to work up that intensity. Well, I believe with all my heart. And we want to work ourselves into that kind of emotional thing. It has nothing to do with your emotion. See, in each of the case, or each of those answers, the person's religious, but they're not like the person described in verse 5 who does not work. They haven't done a real transfer of trust. The person who offers answer number three has actually come to trust in his or her trust. Faith in faith alone. Faith in faith rather than faith in Jesus. And none of those three answers, none of those false understandings leads to the experience of the glorious release that only the gospel provides. So what saving faith actually is makes a radical difference. If faith equals obedience, then you are placing your faith in yourself and in your abilities. Trusting in yourself and your ability will lead either to boasting and pride because you believe that you're doing a pretty good job you believe that you're righteous. Or it will lead to self-hatred and despair because you know deep inside that try as you might, you will never measure up. And you will hate yourself and you'll hate God. That was the experience of Martin Luther before he read Romans. And he was a religious guy. And he come to hate God because he knew that he never could please God. But if faith equals trust in God's promise and in his power, then you are transferring your trust from yourself and your ability to God and his ability. Trusting in God's promise and power leads to humility and it leads to confidence which is what Abraham, as we will see, discovered. So in verses 7 to 8, Paul finally comes to David, and he points out that David says the same thing about this whole matter, same thing that Abraham discovered. David had a lot of reasons, didn't he, for self-pride and boasting. And the guy was a giant slayer. He was a man's man, a skilled, successful, hardened warrior, People of Israel saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. He was a king who had expanded his nation's borders. He had brought peace to Israel. He had established Jerusalem as its capital, brought the Ark of the Covenant of God's presence into the center of the city, and much more. He had a long resume of accomplishments. But David also had a lot of reasons to have been crushed under the weight of his own sinfulness. Uh, he was... An adulterer, uh, 
as part of that story, he became a murderer. But he, like Abraham, had discovered the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count. There's that word again, logizomai. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Notice the three things that that David says God does in response to our sin. He he says that our lawless deeds are forgiven, our sins are covered, and third, God doesn't use them against us. Notice what David did not say. He did not say, blessed are those who do no lawless deeds. Or those who through obedience, attempted obedience, attempt to avoid sin. Instead, what does he do? He acknowledges that he's violated God's law. And he's self-honest. He's honest with himself. He's honest with God. And, and in that, he's blessed with the confidence that the Lord will not count his sin against him. Credited righteousness means this. It means that your sin is no longer counted against you. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's not pretending. It means that your sin is no longer counted against you and can no longer condemn you. I should be hearing hallelujahs right now. I guess it's because we're not Pentecostals. I don't know. Maybe we're Norwegians. I don't know. See, transferring our trust then to, from ourselves to what Christ has accomplished for us at the cross enables us to view ourselves honestly and, and objectively. And instead of being crushed under the weight of our sin, we can get back up when we fail because we know the blessing of being very human men and women very flawed people whose sins are not counted against us. Sinners, to be sure. Deserving of judgment? Yes. But nevertheless justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God hands down a verdict. Acquitted. Justified. He declares us righteous, and then he wraps us in his righteousness. As I was finishing this message, I was... I was found myself actually humming a hymn, and it was like one of those things you do, and then you realize you're doing it. And I was humming this hymn that I used to sing as a kid, just as I am, without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, and that you bid me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to you whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, you will receive, will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because your promise, I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. Great old song, written in 1835. Old oldie but goodie. And so true still today. Always will be. Always will be. I invite you to come. I invite you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't It's not joining a club. It's not becoming a member of a religious organization. 
It's simply trusting in what God has said and what God has done in Jesus Christ so that your sins could be dealt with once and for all and condemn you no longer. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Your grace is, as the old hymn writer put it, amazing, (laughs) mind-boggling, and sweet. And Lord, we thank you. We, we We can't stop thanking you. Those in heaven, including my mom today, are thanking you and praising you, worshiping, falling down before you forever and ever for your grace and your mercy in Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We look forward to the day when we will see you face to face. And until that day, Lord, would you uh, use us and, and cause us to be faithful and fruitful for your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen.